Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that hates laws. Except oh, yeah. for Jude Law, I feel like sometimes I like his shit, but otherwise, fair. <laughs> um, today we have Laura, Zoe, Ellen, Bianca, and Julia. And today we are talking about the slew of anti-trans bills that various pieces of shit in office have been churning out. This year alone, state legislatures across the country have introduced more than 100 bills to restrict trans rights, and more generally, more than 250 bills aimed at harming the LGBTQ community uh, that have been signed, introduced into legislatures this year. So... Before we kind of jump into the scope of what's currently happening, I feel like it's important for us to understand the rise of the religious right in the United States. Um, And this is something we've definitely been dancing around for a few episodes uh, because it just affects so many things in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm feeling like maybe I should just organize like an actual episode on this since we have been talking about it so much. But like... (laughs) The basic gist of it is that you have the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the rise of the feminist movement sort of roughly the same time a little later. We've also got Stonewall in 1969, as we've talked about recently. Um, You've also got the Vietnam um, uh, War and the anti-war protests that are kicking off in the late 1960s going into the early 1970s. You've got the Equal Rights Amendment, which sought to end legal distinctions between men and women. And that was ratified by the House and the Senate in the early 1970s. And at the same time, the landmark Roe v. Wade case um, ruling comes out in 1973. And there's other stuff happening, too. But, like, you know, that's just a little laundry list. Like, basically, the social order is, like, incredibly destabilized towards the end of the 1960s into the 1970s. And so you have people like Jerry Falwell, um, who founded Liberty University, and, you know, people who were paying attention to the news, I think this was during quarantine, um, may remember that his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., ran Liberty University and just, like, resigned in disgrace as his president because oh he was, God. like, his, his his wife was, like, having an affair with the pool boy, and he just, like, would watch, and that information came out, and obviously that was... And just completely untenable for a guy running Liberty University, arguably the most conservative religious uh, university in the country. Wow. Anyway, just a fun fact. Jerry Falwell Sr. was a hardline right-wing Christian and essentially realized that other conservative Christians weren't being mobilized effectively in electoral politics in a way that could essentially put a stop to a lot of the changes taking place in the country. So he and his buddies got together in the the 1970s to try to organize a massive socially and economically conservative political movement that was grounded in Christianity, but broadly marketed. And their most obvious sort of first success was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. He was very closely associated with Falwell and the rest of these guys. But like anybody not living under a rock today can tell you that the organized religious right has been hugely influential in American politics for many decades now. Yes. Um, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Like, I, I knew, like, when I was like, I think we should talk about this. I'm like, I hope Kellen does some stuff because, like, you just know more about it. Uh, so thank it's, you so it's much. It's literally my job. So, like, yeah. it's, it's fine. Literally my job. <laughs> literally a doctor now. Uh, 
Oh my god. Yes. Thank you so much. I have changed. we talked about that on the pod yet? We've talked about it on episodes where you haven't been on. Oh, um, that's so funny. <laughs> but, you know, not while you were here. So congratulations Thank to Dr. Thank you so much. Colin. I I did literally this is so annoying but i feel i like that i have now a title that's not gendered you know what i mean that is like widely recognized yeah absolutely i i have like um you know like nespresso the nespresso machines (laughs) i have like the janky um like off-brand version of that and i went to order my like little coffee today and laura's seen it and i changed my um title because they require you to have a title from ms to your coffee wow my coffee like the or to order the like little pods for it like the like the shipping yes to send it to me i was like wow that is a formal coffee machine no it's It's actually like a brand it's like good morning dr (laughs) (laughs) mx coffee (laughs) exactly Um, So kind of building off of what Kellen, Dr. Kellen, was just talking about, uh, we have to talk about the absolute piece of shit and founder of the Heritage Foundation, Paul Weyrich. Who was very good friends with Jerry Falwell, by the way. I had a feeling when you were like, some of his buddies, I'm like, this motherfucker's got to be. Weyrich was one of them, yes. So he he kind of took this political moment, um, particularly following the case of Roe v. Wade, um, and tried to galvanize the right into a so-called moral majority. He wrote, the new political philosophy must be defined by us, conservatives, in moral terms, packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition. When political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. But this, sorry, it's just, as someone who grew up Catholic and, like, had so much brainwashing, it's like, I, this stuff really fucking makes me so mad. Um, But this hypothetical moral majority needed a catalyst, a standard around which to rally. And basically, uh, it started out by kind of, being involved in uh, segregation school stuff um, where they wanted to fund basically like charter schools and the school board fought the lack of funding essentially that they were getting because all this money was being poured into these other so-called public schools. So they first started tried to galvanize around that. I was reading about it. Uh, But really what ended up being the further catalyst was uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, but also, like, you know, many, uh, many shady as fuck laws have written that have been written since the Heritage Foundation was founded in 1972, which the Heritage Foundation is like a right wing think tank. They like literally churn out policy that often, like, I think there's like footage of or like proof of some Republican right wing people literally presenting laws and like forgetting to change the header that like said the heritage foundation and shit so it's really important to know that that is very influential on what happens in our lawmaking because it's very related to the types of laws we are seeing targeting queer and trans children and adults across the country today yeah i just wanted to add a little bit about um what laura just said about abortion being one of the like primary things that they rallied behind, well, anti-abortion being the main thing they rallied behind. Um, 
But as Kellen said, like the resurgence of mainstream feminism was happening in the 60s and 70s leading up to this. And the main focuses of that were like liberating women from unpaid domestic labor and unfulfilling marriages, which we discussed on the Institute of Marriage episode, um, as well as uh, a lot of trying to increase access to birth control and other contraceptives and, of course, organizing for legalizing abortion. Um, And so these were all things that were, of course, seen as a threat to specifically the like family values element of the like religious right. Um, So I wanted to read a quote from this little feminist scene I have. Um, The author's name is Petronella Lee. And um, they wrote, the outright advocates not only for male supremacy, but more specifically for white supremacy. Sexism is the gateway drug that has led many to join the outright. The basic idea that women are getting too out of hand is the patriarchal common denominator. And it aligns perfectly with male rage against quote, social justice activism which in turn paves the way for white nationalism and white supremacy to gain foothold. So yeah, the religious right saw all the demands of the feminist movement and the other movements as Kellen mentioned were of course influencing that, that the religious right was like, we need to do something about this, but the like feminist movement was kind of the like primary thing that they were able to like get people on board for. And then, yeah, and then really chaos ensued. And Laura's about to tell us more about that. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So the idea of there being a morally correct way to exist in America wasn't too hard of a sell on the American people. Um, It ensured that the U.S. remained very vocally white supremacist, homophobic, transphobic, and misogynistic. Places like the Heritage Foundation literally wrote laws for right and continue to write laws for right wing politicians to present on the floor. So you have a fundamental religious group with a shit ton of lobbying power and political influence beginning to pull the strings of U.S. lawmaking. Uh, Pat Robertson, uh, he was like briefly a Republican politician. Like, thank you, Kellen, for this piece of information too um but he was basically mostly a major televangelist in the 90s um he said the acceptance of homosexuality is the last step in the decline of a gentile civilization basically right-wing religious extremists integrated politics major media outlets and they work very closely and get paid handsomely for doing so with the heritage foundation and others like it to religious extremists Queer people face the same sinful end as murderers and rapists. Yeah. And I think it's important to keep in mind that, like, all of this stuff is stirring. So you get Ronald Reagan elected. You have people like Pat Robertson, who's on TV preaching constantly, like, you know, starting in the 70s through the 80s through the 90s about, like, the sins of homosexuality. And all this is also happening at the same time as the AIDS crisis is erupting. And so we talked recently um, earlier this Pride Month, um, although I guess when this comes out, it won't be Pride Month anymore, shed a single tear. But we talked recently um, about, like, the organizing that was happening in the context of the AIDS crisis. And, like, these are the people those queer activists are organizing against. Yeah, such a good point. So larger visibility in mainstream media and the general push for queer and trans rights has increased the visibility of queerness in daily life, which has really prompted a subsequent pushback from these shithead fundamentalists. They're like, oh, you're not like hiding in the closet anymore. We're going to rain terror on you even more than we were before. 
Um, so Christian orthodoxy had spread from the church to the home, from the congregation to lobbying, and from the Bible to what's supposed to be, supposed to be secular law. Religion literally became the front line in the fight against queer rights and the rise in anti-gay violence. In fact, the Christian right has held its ground for so many years that it is obvious that religious bigotry is a root cause of anti-queer and trans legislature and anti-queer and trans violence throughout the United States. Yeah, yeah. And before we get to, um, ex- like, a lot of the stuff that's happening right now, I just wanted to turn to, like, one important precedent that happened um, in the last few years. And that is the first of the big bathroom bills, as they're called, um, which was North Carolina's HB2, which stands for House Bill 2. Um, it was passed in 2016, and it was signed into law by former Governor Pat McCrory, who is a shitbag extraordinaire on the topic of shitbags. Um, just a little side note, he used to be the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I grew up. And like, Charlotte's a relatively liberal city by North Carolina standards. Like, We're not Asheville or Chapel Hill, but it's still an urban center. So to win there, this guy portrayed himself as like this very Romney-esque moderate guy. But then he ran for governor of the whole state and went like way, way to the right, like became oh one... Trump was running. He was like a big Trump guy. Um, He's not governor anymore, but I believe he's going to be running for Senate in 2022. Um, And someday my home state will rid themselves of the pestilence that is Pat McCrory, but that day is not today. Final Pat McCrory side note. His niece went to my high school and he came and gave us a talk on leadership while he was mayor. And I just feel like it's been several episodes since I've mentioned that I hated my high school. um, So I needed to slip that in there. Yes. Anyway. So you like know him. Yeah, we're we are personal enemies, essentially, is what I'm getting. To. <laughs> so Pat he's McCrory, a real enemy motherfucking pod, enemy of the pod. <laughs> enemy of the pod, personal enemy of Kellen. Yes. Um, so, Doctor. Anyway, Doctor Kellen. Dr. Kellen yeah. Personal so, enemy of Doctor Kellen is a personal <laughs> enemy to us all. <laughs> um, so HB two, the bill that Pat McCrory, our enemy, signed, mandated that individuals had to use bathrooms that corresponded with the sex that was listed on their birth certificate. It also overrode any local or municipal ordinances that would have offered contrary guidance. And there were those pieces of legislation had been passed on a local level to talk, basically bring um, like bathrooms more aligned with how people identified themselves rather than how the state had identified them. Um, The bill is just like horribly discriminatory, like blatantly hateful. Um, And it did receive a lot of pushback. And it's interesting, I think, to compare this to what's happening today. Um, Because in some ways, HB2 just peaked too early and might have had more success if it had come into play like four or five years later. But in 2016, we ha- we saw like big organizations and companies pulling out of states in response to retrogress- re- retrogressive legislation. We've seen some of that with like voting stuff in Georgia as well. Um, and I want to be clear that it's not because companies are like our woke saviors or anything like that, but because it's a good PR move when something is as blatantly shitty as HB2 was. And this was, like I said, sort of the first big example of that happening on a large scale. So HB2 was only in place for about a year, but it's estimated that North Carolina lost almost half a billion dollars in investment directly because of the bill's passage. Like the county that I grew up in alone lost almost $300 million. Um, the NBA All-Star Game, for example, was supposed to be hosted in the city where I grew up. The NBA pulled out. PayPal was supposed to expand into Charlotte. They canceled that. Like there was just this massive backlash. 
Um, and again, it's important to note that like these corporations weren't, they were responding to grassroots pressure. They weren't like leading the charge by any means. Like it's not like Coca-Cola is like woke and going to save us all. You know what I mean? Um, it's just a measure of how unpopular the, the bill was that they were responding to this kind of pressure. And the backlash turns out to probably be a big part of why Pat McCrory lost re-election to the governorship just by a few thousand votes in 2016 and a Democrat won, even though the state went for Trump. And the bill was then repealed in 2017. A f- just a final point on HB2, like it quite rightly got a lot of attention for its horrendous politics on trans issues, but it also dealt a major blow to labor in the state. And this is something that the news didn't focus on because of how important and you know horrible the, the bathroom bill side of things were was. Um, but it, the HB2 also made it illegal for individual cities or counties to institute their own minimum wage laws. It meant that the state was the final arbiter of the minimum wage and no, no county or city could raise it higher than what North Carolina said the minimum wage was. And so in some places in North Carolina, like mainly cities, there was a higher minimum wage required from employers. The cost of living is obviously much higher in a place like Charlotte, where I grew up, um, it's the biggest city in the Southeast outside Atlanta than it is in like the more rural areas of the state. Um, and obviously the minimum wage as it stands is a travesty everywhere. Like, don't get me wrong on that, but yeah, HB2 nullified the city level minimum wage standards that had been established in multiple places in North Carolina. And it's like, it's so funny to me because there are these people supposedly on the left who say things like trans issues or wedge issues, like they're culture war issues. They're not things that like the working class can relate to. I'm doing a lot of like quotation marks with my hands problem with the podcast is you can't see it but like legislators are you feel it (laughs) you feel you feel it like (laughs) legislators are using anti-trans bills to push through these massively anti-working class priorities as well to say nothing of the fact that most trans people are working class people so like our enemies are directly connecting these issues and like we should be viewing them as intertwined ourselves that's my spiel on hb2 Let's it was perfect. It. It was Let's perfect. get into it. That's, thank you so much. Um, so fast forward to the year of our Lord. And when I say our Lord, I mean Megan the Stallion or Satan, to be clear. Uh, no Christian gods here. Uh, 2021. We've already had a, a record year for states aiming to restrict transgender rights. Yeah, I just want to emphasize for maybe people are listening to this after the fact, it is currently the end of June as of recording this. It'll be early July when this episode comes out and like already the most to date of the year. Yeah. So the latest uh, attack on trans rights was a ban in Florida on transgender athletes playing on girls school sports teams. So on the first day of Pride, Florida. Can I can I jump in really quick? Donald Rumsfeld is dead. What? What? (laughs) Oh my god! Sorry. Wow. Everyone just like you know take a sip, take a puff, do a thing that's like in the for the. It'll be old news Uh, by the time this gets out. But I do feel that it's breaking news right now. It is important. That's amazing. I love having like the our reaction. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so I much. I do feel like we manifested that. <laughs> I once saw Amazing. Donald Rumsfeld wearing, I actually have a picture of it. Maybe I'll put it on the cover of this episode. Yes. Just like totally relevant <laughs> to our topic. But I Just have a fun. picture of, well, that I saw. I, Donald Rumsfeld and I 
brag went to the same college and I saw him it's not a brag to be clear (laughs) um I saw him at because we like graduated it like on this his like my graduation year was his like 65th and like reunion so he was at my school when I graduated and for reunions every year like every class does like a an outfit that they all wear together and the 65th anniversary of his class graduating and that was in like 2014 so anyway he graduated like when dinosaurs were still roaming the earth basically surprise surprise they had a racist costume so i have seen a donald rumsfeld has walked before my very eyes wearing a kimono and carrying a wooden umbrella Fuck that dude. For I many reasons. I hate him so much. And now he's dead. And so now that's he's all. fucking dead. Well, good riddance. I'm sorry to have interrupted you, Laura. It just. It's okay. It I couldn't say the word important. Florida, so it really worked out because I've been practicing <laughs> it in my head. Um, so on the first day of Pride, Florida's Republic. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> On the first day of Pride, someone else is going to die while I'm, like, messing this up. (laughs) Okay. On the first day of Pride, Florida's Republican Governor DeSantis. Enemy of the pod. Major enemy of the pod. Signed an anti-trans bill. It's a ban on trans women and girls participating in women and girls sports. Unfortunately, it is similar to seven other bills that have been signed into law just in 2021, and it's basically the same as Idaho's ban on trans women and girls participating in sports that was signed into law in 2020. So we're now seeing this widespread movement to ban women and girls who are trans from women's sports. I think what happened in Florida, which is kind of what we're seeing across the board, is you have This bill, which is falsely pitched as defending or protecting women, what it does is ban a subset of women and girls from sports, trans women and girls. And in the process, it allows the state to police the bodies of all women and girl athletes. It turns over this policing authority because essentially what it is saying is that some women and girls aren't legitimately women and girls, and the state and others are empowered to challenge people's sex. It's the fucked up and false notion that trans women are somehow predatory rather than beautiful effervescent beings that they undoubtedly are. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good point that – A lot of these bills, including um, especially the bathroom bills, are presented as this thing that's seeking to, like, protect other women, specifically, like, protecting cis women. Um, And that reminds me of the conversation we had on the race, gender, and fascism episode. And I think we briefly talked about bathroom bills specifically in that conversation, but um, how, like, a lot of fascist ideologies are presented as something that is to protect women. Like another example of this is that the laws against interracial marriage were largely justified as a need to like protect innocent white women from being in relationships with men of color. And that sort of notion dated back to being used as a justification for like a lot of lynchings as well. So it's of course not that they give a shit about women, but it is like this reasoning that is used like again and again in shit like this. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And I think it's also important to call out another part of the argument that's often used to defend these types of bills, 
which basically has to do with this idea of like fairness in air quotes in competition. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like literally every trans woman I know, like all my trans women friends would say like, please try to watch me run or throw a football. Like there's no secret advantage trans women have in sports. <laughs> Yeah, like, I think it's important to say that trans athletes are people just like anyone else. Like, trans people win sometimes, we lose sometimes. We're not magical beings who, like, always win or always lose. Um, I mean, you're magical to me. We're, we're magical to me. <laughs> but, like, to the Republicans, well, we're, you, not, but, we're not. But, yes, you know, it's not like, I don't know. I feel like it sort of goes along with trans people either being like put on a pedestal or sort of demonized as like monstrous in some way like this idea that you either have to be like perfect and always win or like never be able to do anything um and also just like most people in general are never going to be elite athletes that's just like a very very tiny amount of people in the first place and these bills aren't even really about like elite competitive sports they're about whether you can like be on your middle school track team, which for most kids on sports teams, the main point isn't really like winning every single competition and like breaking records and becoming a professional athlete. It's just doing like a fun, challenging activity with your friends. And it's a very important bonding, like social experience for a lot of kids. And these laws are taking that away from a lot of kids unnecessarily. The other thing I just wanted to say is like, even when we get into talking about elite sports and like competitive professional athletes, the gender differences in athletic ability are not as extreme as popular culture tends to portray them. Um, even between cis men and cis women athletes, there are just like so many other factors besides gender that have more to do with how good someone is at a sport than their gender or assigned sex at birth. Um, one major one that comes to mind is class and whether they could afford like fancy sports training camps when they were a kid. Um, similar to how like most famous actors and musicians and stuff have family in that industry. There's a huge amount of elite athletes who it's like in their family for generations. And that's partly because those parents send their kids to like all the best training camps. And that is a much bigger factor than your gender. Um, another thing is just like genetic factors that aren't particularly correlated to sex or gender, like how big your lungs are and how much air you can take in and like how much oxygen your blood can absorb. All of these other factors that really have nothing to do with gender. Um, one of my favorite trans reporters who covers this topic a lot, Brittany De La Creta, wrote this great article about basically all of the trans masculine kids who are on sports teams and often get overlooked in this conversation. And many of them are winning in competitions against cis men. I think partly because these bills are driven by transphobia, but by trans misogyny specifically. Yes. Like, yeah, it's like trans feminine people are targeted the most by these laws and the rhetoric that supports them. And part of what that means is that trans men and trans masculine people just get like fully ignored. It's like as though they don't exist, which is a privilege in some ways, like not being targeted as heavily, but also like, you know, some trans women do really well and win in sports and that's great. And they should still be allowed to compete. But I think looking at the fact that trans masculine kids compete and win on men's teams is right. a really strong counter argument 
to this idea that trans people can't compete fairly on the team that matches their gender because it's like, well, if that were true, then how are trans men winning? Like, you know, people just can't imagine a world where men aren't physically, biologically, yes, quote best. unquote, stronger. So fuck yeah. off. Yes to trans men kicking their asses. Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also, I mean, gender sports in general, especially for kids, I think is obviously is very normalized. I think that makes people not really think about how unnecessary it is. Like you literally just don't need to do that. Um, I coached a high school swim team for a couple of years. It was co-ed. We never split them up by gender. There was literally no problem. Um, when we need to split them up to like work on strokes or whatever, we would either do it by like speed or the level of experience. And there were like a couple of times that some of the boys on the team would like be a little fragile about their masculinity they'd be like I don't want to be in a lane with a girl I don't want a girl to be faster than me and then I would just give them a little coach Zoe talking to and then it was literally fine and then they would do it I would just be like no it's like you know that's not a thing that doesn't make sense you don't feel any way about it just like we can just all swim together and then be like oh yeah okay cool one of the a little off topic one of the boys I will just never forget before practice one day in class I guess they like learned about patriarchy because they had to take like diversity classes it was this like very like progressive private school and this like 16 year old boy comes to practice and was like I just don't know what we're supposed to do about patriarchy like it's not like my fault like I just don't know what to do so anyway you can just talk to kids about it and they're literally fine yeah, that's so that's cute. amazing. <laughs> I, I also I also think it's worth considering like and this is something that Laura alluded to like how invasive these bills are both for trans and cis people and I'm, I'm definitely not saying like oh cis people are the real victims here because <laughs> clearly not but I do think that these bills affect cis people too especially cis women and they should be really concerning to cis women like because what these bills imply is that there is an authority and it's generally men who have the right to police women's bodies to determine what is or is not a real woman's body. And it implies that the state does and should have full access to the bodies of anybody who identifies as a woman Again, whether those bodies belong to cisgender or transgender women. And this isn't strictly the U.S., but we've seen some of this in play, for example, with Kaustar Semenya, who's the South African gold medal runner who has been forced to undergo extensive and invasive testing to, quote unquote, prove her womanness. Um, It is worth noting that she is intersex, but was assigned female at birth and has what's called hyperandrogenism, which basically just means that her body produces higher than expected levels of testosterone. Um, Her testosterone levels were eventually declared an unfair advantage, and she was barred from competition by the World Athletics Forum. And, like, nobody is saying, like, Michael Phelps's weird-ass body and, like, giant lungs disqualify him from swimming. Like, people literally (laughs) say he's gross. People say he's like genetically predisposed to swimming, but like this is a clear example. Nobody's the the opposite is true for Castor Semenya. And like this is a clear example of the ways that like A, femininity is demanded from women. B, they're punished for not fitting a Western standard of femininity, even if they aren't trans. C, that particularly black women are subject to this kind of policing. D, that like anti-trans attitudes in sports and 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 more broadly have ripple effects that extend far beyond just trans communities. I also have higher than like normal levels of testosterone. And I'm going to say, I do not think it's made me better at sports whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put that out there for the listeners to, to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So not only have there been bills that have sought to prevent trans women from playing women's sports, there have also been a couple lawsuits in this realm. So I like read a bunch of them yesterday. So I think it's actually worth digging into this just because like looking at the judges reasoning patterns in this in these opinions, I think tell a lot about where the environment actually stands, like what people are actually thinking about this. So one of the most notable cases surrounding trans women's eligibility to participate in women's sports was actually filed in federal court in the U.S. And the two athletes who were the focal point of this lawsuit were Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood, who were two Black trans women who were sprinters on their high school track team. So they were like two of the fastest runners in Connecticut at that level. And so the plaintiff who brought this suit was this group called Alliance Defending Freedom or ADF, whose name sounds like very benign and like overly generic, but in actuality, they are this legal organization that has historically argued a lot of anti-queer and anti-trans bills in front of the Supreme Court. I think they come from like the same vein of groups that Laura was uh, mentioning at the beginning of the episode that are like far right and like very Christian. And so this group, the ADF filed this suit actually against the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference or CIAC, which is that state's uh, governing body for high school sports. And so in this suit, I think the way that the plaintiff, the ADF came to their argument was like really particularly pernicious because they were actually arguing that trans women participating in women's sports was actually a Title IX violation Title IX being the law passed that protects people from being discriminated against on the basis of sex in any education program or activity that receives federal financial assistance. So in this case, high school sports. They argued that allowing trans women to participate in sports um, by virtue of that, it was quote unquote, excluding quote unquote, another group, i.e. cis women from being able to participate That was their argument. So like in 2019, they had already made a very similar argument um, in front of the Department of Education. And so like this whole scheme where they argue that trans women being like participating in sports, doing anything that aligns with their gender identity, arguing that that was a Title IX violation was certainly not new territory for them. So for this present case, ADF filed a 29-page complaint all throughout referring to Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood as men, which is uh, unconscionable. And luckily, Connecticut is one of 18 states that allows all athletes to participate on this high school sports team that's in alignment with their gender identity. So the CIEC was able to form like a pretty strong defense against the plaintiff here. But ultimately what happened was the district court judge ended up dismissing this case, but it wasn't for reasons that I think one would expect. So in his opinion, Judge Robert Chattagny, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, wrote that since uh, Miller and Yearwood, the two trans women athletes had graduated from high school by the time this case had crossed his desk, the ADF could not, and because the ADF could not identify any other trans women athletes to include in their suit, he said there was, quote unquote, no further dispute to resolve. So he was basically saying like, oh, well, it doesn't matter anymore because these two women have already graduated from high school. So like it doesn't there's no issue here. And he worse left open the possibility of hearing another argument if the ADF or if some other plaintiff could come up with more trans women to basically target, dehumanize and harass. So that was why the case got dismissed. So 
what are we supposed to make of all of this? So like, of course, it's good that the case was dismissed like on its face because it mitigates the risk at that moment of trans people, trans women specifically being denied their right to play on the sports teams they want to play on. But notably absent from the judge's opinion was the argument that trans women are women, for example. And even worse, he left this door open to hear more arguments if there were other trans athletes the ADF could name. And like he explicitly said that the reason he was dismissing this suit was simply because the two women had already graduated high school. So like, of course, the ultimate result of the case is a win. And I think organizations like the ACLU were like, yes, this is a win for trans people, trans athletes. But like, if you look at the reasoning pattern, like it, like it was dismissed out of circumstance, not out of affirmation of the trans athletes. So I think there is still a lot more work to be done and more threats to consider. Um, a couple other things I wanted to note aside from this opinion, but related to this case are like, as Zoe and Laura were saying at the beginning, um, this argument that transphobic lawmakers, lawyers, TERFs in general make um, in cases against trans women, which is like their aim being that they want to quote unquote protect women. Um, I think that's why the plaintiff in this case, the ADF came at this case from this like title IX excluding women angle because to them it appears noble, it appears like they're doing something morally good but obviously it's extremely transphobic and dehumanizing. Um, also, I think just like it's very messed up that they wrangle title IX to form arguments like this one. And I mean, this is like a very general thing but something I always keep noticing is like very terrible organizations using very benign names like Alliance Defending Freedom that like conceal what they actually do and stand for. So I think like you see this a lot with other lobbying groups and like PACs especially where it's like, oh, I wonder what they do. It just seems too generic. And then you like Google them and it turns out they're like terrible, terrible people. Love this legal analysis, first of all, from future lawyer Bianca. Oh my God. Um, and <laughs> I also wanted to. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to. We're gonna need one. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about some of the bills that have come through that aren't focused on sports or bathrooms. So, like the most obvious one is Arkansas recent trans anti-trans bill, which um, they gave just about the most disgusting name I could imagine for something so hateful. It's the Save Adolescents from Experimentation or Safe Act. Um, it was passed this spring and it prevents transgender kids under the age of 18 from receiving any kind of gender affirming health care. Um, the way that the Republicans who backed the bill explain it is that gender affirming treatment like puberty blockers are quote unquote experimental and are being used on kids who don't know who they are yet. Um, obviously trans people and LGBT organizations are like, fuck that, um, and argue on the other hand that these treatments are literally lifesavers, like bettering people's mental health and also making suicide a much less likely outcome. Yeah, I also just really want to hit home here that this whole idea that these treatments are experimental is complete nonsense. There is nothing new or experimental about puberty blockers. They've been used for decades for a variety of reasons, um, including to help kids who start puberty really early and face like social stigma because of it, and for kids who have eating disorders that they're recovering from to help balance out their body's hormonal functions because that can unsurprisingly break down a bit when your body doesn't have all the nutrients that it needs. Um, and the research on the benefits and safety of puberty blockers goes back to at least the 1970s, and they've been in use and approved since the 1980s. So if these medications were really as dangerous as transphobes claim, we would have a lot of evidence to point to right now to support it, because there would be people as old as their 40s who use them as children. 
But not at all shockingly, there is no evidence to support these wild transphobic claims because Republican legislators are basically just making this shit up as they go along. And like we talked about with the sports bills, they frame laws like this as something to quote unquote protect children um, without noting that these drugs have been used to help children for years and years at this point. And I think similar to what Helen was saying with the sports bills, like limiting the use of these medications obviously harms trans kids the most and it also harms all of the other kids who need these medications for other reasons and who have been able to use them safely up until now without anyone having a problem with it yeah and i i'm pretty sure that we've shit talked the apa which is or i know we've shit talked the apa the american psychological association on this podcast before i'm pretty sure in our other episodes on healthcare we've also shit talked the ama i think the american medical association but like as massive professional orgs tend to be these groups are like relatively conservative in how they engage with social change but even the APA and the AMA have come out against the Arkansas law, calling it dangerous and ungrounded in reality. The Republican governor, um, Asa Hutchinson, even vetoed the bill because he was worried it set too much of a precedent for government overreach in individual lives and in healthcare, which says a lot. But literally within like 24 hours, his veto was overridden. And this is, in fact, the reality for trans kids in Arkansas now. And the bill even makes it illegal for doctors to refer kids to other providers, meaning that a doctor is legally prohibited from sending someone over the border to Missouri or whatever to get the treatment that they need. Uh, yeah, it's so horrifying. Um, just one thing that I wanted to add to that because puberty blockers specifically fall under the medical field of endocrinology and the major organizations in that field specifically have also come out saying that puberty blockers are part of like basically their guidelines for ethical medical care. So the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, along with a bunch of other similar groups, initially released these guidelines in 2009, saying that puberty blockers are a part of reasonable and ethical care um, for both children and adults. So again, although we don't support medical organizations gatekeeping the care trans people can receive, I do think it's important to note that in this case, there's broad medical agreement and scientific agreement, and that's been the case for quite a while. Um, so there are 19 other states that have proposed or are considering similar bills, and I really think we need to fight them as hard as we can. Um, similar to the fight against abortion restrictions, like this is something that the more places that start instituting these laws, people are going to start having to try to like go to other states to get proper care. Um, and yeah, it's just really horrifying and against all common sense and human decency in conclusion, this bill is garbage. Yes. Um, one other horrifying new law that I wanted to mention is one that was passed in Montana um, a couple of months ago, which makes it so that you can only change your gender on legal documents like your birth certificate if you get a literal court order stating, and I'm quoting from the awful transphobic language that they use in the law here, quote, indicating that the sex of a person has been changed by surgical procedure, unquote. Yeah, so this was a problem with HB2 as well, because you could only change your birth certificate if you could prove that you'd had gender reassignment surgery. Like, it was it was crazy. Yeah, and I mean, this is like we've talked about with a lot of these other laws, it's just horribly invasive and unnecessary for a multitude of reasons. But I think the major one here is that not all trans people have every possible gender confirmation, confirmation surgery. And 
there are so many different types of medical procedures that can fall under this category. It just seems like so invasive and wrong for a court to be trying to rule on someone's gender and whether they're trans enough. Um, and I think this is like concerning to see this starting to be like its own individual law that states are trying to pass. Yeah. So I think the the last thing we want to talk about for today um, is religious exemption bills. So religious exemption bills essentially mean that regardless of the laws that are in place otherwise, um, people can choose to deny someone depending, there's all kinds of different ones, but denying people medical treatment or services, um, other kinds of services, really anything based on their own religious reasoning. And these sorts of bills are used to deny people um, things like birth control and abortion access, access to healthcare otherwise. Um, and it could even mean like a trans person could go into a restaurant and the person working at the restaurant could be like, nope, your identity is against my religion. I don't want to serve you today. Um, and that that's fine because they're religiously exempt from being decent human beings. And it also is something that like pharmacists, you could go to a pharmacy trying to get your birth control or whatever other medication, puberty blockers, and the pharmacist could just be like, no, I don't think you should have this. So you, I'm not gonna sell it to you. Um, and yeah, that they're allowed to do this. And so no surprise, there have been um, a lot of new religious exemption bills going along with a lot of the anti-trans bills that we've been talking about. Um, and so some of the more recent ones are uh, several states have been implementing religious exemptions from offering um, any queer and trans folks health care. Um, that doesn't only mean specifically denying gender affirming care, which is bad enough on its own, but it could mean just like turning someone away if the nurse or doctor on duty doesn't want to treat them because that's against their religion. Um, and what is America founded on if not religious freedom? Am I right? And then, <laughs> and then another major one recently is that several states have filed exemptions for um, foster care and adoption systems uh, for allowing queer and trans folks from adopting or fostering children. So this, of course, goes back to the lobbying power of the religious right, as Laura talked about in the beginning, because religious exemption bills are a way for the far right to kind of circumnavigate other protections that are in place. And even more so than the way they paint the other bills as fairness, this is all under the guise of their religious freedom, which is an American value. Um, so yeah, fucked up. You hate to see it. Yeah. So if you want to support a very anti-religious, very pro-gay, pro-trans uh, group of folks, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash season of the bitch you can follow us on instagram and twitter at season of the bee you can rate review subscribe on itunes you can uh tell a friend about us yeah tell a friend about us in person get yeah. off your phones kids <laughs> <laughs> as, as we're all like oh, yeah, on twitter. my grandfather yeah. <laughs> amazing okay love you Love, love you. you. Love you all. Bye. 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 Season of the bitch.